0: Hello, I'm Anita Ford Saunders, and this is the first of what I hope to be several episodes of my podcast, 60 Plus, Sharing the Wisdom We've Earned. The idea for this podcast came after hearing a pitch for an annual event celebrating professionals under 40. You know, then it occurred to me that people often forget those who came before, their contributions, and lessons left on the boardroom table that may not get attention or attribution. Most of my colleagues and peers have earned the right to enter this next season in our lives. In this new season for us, there's a lot to share from what we've learned in our professional and personal lives. This is how the idea for the podcast came to fruition, 60 Plus, sharing the wisdom we've earned. I'll talk to people 60 and over about the paths they've traveled and what they learned along the way. Last year, in 2021, I was honored to tape an interview with retired Hartford Chief of Police Bernard Sullivan. As you may know, Bernie passed away in the fall of 2021. I promised him I would still air the interview. I felt that what he had to say would still make a difference in how we live our lives. Former Hartford Chief of Police Bernard Sullivan advanced through the ranks of the Hartford Police Department, beginning as a patrolman in 1964 to detective, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and then chief of police in 1982. He retired from that position in 1989. He served as public safety commissioner after his retirement from the Hartford Police Department, and after that, was recruited to work out a pretty tough situation within the CCSU police force. This wasn't the last time Bernie's expertise and integrity were sought out. He'll share that later on in the podcast. Bernie's community involvement was extensive, serving on close to a dozen community boards. He won several professional and community awards, not the least of which was the Chief's Medal of Valor in 1978. Welcome, Bernie. How are you?
1: Good, Anita. How are you, my friend?
0: I am doing
1: really, really well.
0: You know, when this idea came up, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, you and uh, our friend Lou Brown were the first people on my list. Um, and it's something special about you, Bernie, where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in what they call Clay Hill, the north end of Hartford. Uh, lived in a my, my, my seven sibling, and my mom and dad and I lived in a five-room what they called a cold water flat in those days. My kids laugh when I Use that expression. They say, "What the hell is a cold water flat? And it's <laughs> just that we didn't have any hot water. It was a bath once a week on Saturday night. All and right. let me tell you, being number seven was not fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. So you you grew up in, in the Clay Hill area. What did you take from the neighborhood?
1: That, well, we that... grew up. It, it was a very mixed neighborhood. Uh We were very poor, like everybody else. The one thing everybody had in common: I'm like, what color were? religion you were we were all very poor mm-hmm. uh it, it was a benefit to me I think because I grew up in a neighborhood with blacks and hispanics the, the uh, hispanics came later uh, I actually was an altar boy serving the first hispanic Mass in Hartford. would you believe that one? Huh? wow
0: uh
1: but I think that that upbringing it, it showed me how people uh who are poor are not there by choice mm. you know circumstances mm-hmm. like, you know like my in my family, my mom was a saint. She was a hard-working woman. She was a registered nurse. My father, unfortunately, was a nasty alcoholic who didn't contribute. Mm. Uh, my mom carried that burden. And so uh, you, you get to see what it's like where a woman has to carry the house and be the, the matriarchy, You get to see what it's like to grow up poor and mm-hmm. uh, realize that uh, you didn't pick to grow up that way in circumstances. So later on in life, when you come across people in similar circumstances, I think it gives you a better understanding of the environment that they're in, and you don't develop the uh, stereotypes that a lot of people develop. So I think growing up that way was a real benefit to me. Made some friends there uh, that have lasted until, uh, you know, Lou Brown in particular. Mm. He and I uh, have remained very good friends over the years, go to each other's kids' weddings and stuff like that. This, mm. His kids still call me Uncle Bernie. Uh, so I, I, I think that, you know, that was a big benefit. I don't think you can replace that. I think that uh, people that grow up in a sterile environment where it's all one homogenous society out in the country, all white, uh, whatever, I think they they miss that. And I think that uh, it, it's a benefit to have had that upbringing. It's a, to know, it's a benefit to know what it's like to be hungry because you can understand why there is such a great need out there for people to get help.
0: Absolutely. You, you answered the question. How did that serve you in your career? Obviously in, in your law enforcement career, did you plan on law enforcement? Did you do, want to do something else prior to that?
1: I actually wanted to be a lawyer, but I couldn't afford to go to school. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated high school, I stayed, I went full time. I had a job in a mail room at the Hartford insurance group where I met another great friend and mentor of mine, Bill Seymour, who, mm-hmm. uh, him and Madeline have both mm-hmm. passed, but uh, two wonderful people in my life. And then as soon as I turned 21, I one day took the test for the police department for the heck of it, and I passed. I grew up, we, we grew up with you know, real neighborhood cops. Uh, they you know, the cops that walked the beat and knew, knew all the kids. There was mm-hmm. one cop I remember in particular, uh, we called him Smokey, his name was Frank Deneen. And, you know, Frank made sure that any poor kid that needed a bike, Frank would go around and get bikes and fix them up and give them the kids. Uh, it was that kind of a relationship. So you kind of admired the cops. They were good, good folks to good care of you. And, uh, you know, I passed the test. I got into the Academy, got through the Academy. And, uh, from there, I had a very good career. I got lucky. I passed some tests along the way. I advanced. And one day I woke up and somebody asked me to be chief. And I said, yeah,
0: Yeah, you got (laughs) passed a couple of tests. So, So, you know, obviously it wasn't all um, it wasn't all easy. Um, Would you say if you look back on the positions that you had, would you say that there were risks that you might have taken in hindsight uh, when you look back on on your career?
1: Oh, I took enough risks. I think. I don't think I would have of any more risk. I took plenty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, be, be, you know the, the, being a cop on the street is tough. People throw things at you. You get the sometimes very physical altercations, like any any cop after 20-something years in the job, you get your share of scars. I got a few hmm. that I picked up along the way.
0: Bernie, a lot of things are different now today. Yes. Um, share your... your Share what you have learned and then apply it to today and what you may, what kind of wisdom would you impart on other law enforcement professionals coming up as well as kind of the community and how they see police?
1: Well, I think first of all, that both the police and the community need each other. One cannot survive without the other. So the idea of having this contentious relationship benefits nobody i think the police made a very big mistake when the black lives movement started instead of jumping back saying blue lives matter and making it like a we they relationship they should have sat back and met with the folks from black lives matter and say what's your issues what can we what can we do to help the police around the front line but they are not necessarily the ones that create the situations that cause tensions Mm -hmm. i think on the other side that the black lives matter folks made a big mistake in the way they conducted themselves in some of the demonstrations violence doesn't make you get any friends it just turns people against you and it gives people a reason to make you look worse than you are for the most part they kept their demonstrations peaceful which is very smart but a couple of times, they get out of hand, and that's something that they need to be very careful of in the future. But I think that both sides need to come to the table and realize that racism is still alive and well. You can't deny it. And what can we all do to make it better? What can we do to try to fix it? Mm-hmm. Today's day and age, post-Trump, who i rather refer to as the guy with the cheap can, mm-hmm. this guy has caused more damage to our country Because he encouraged and bought out the far right and every racist son of a gun that was been hiding under a rock like a snake for years. He gave them a sense of legitimacy. And it's frankly scary to see how many people supported him and his ideas. Because it just proves that racism is alive and well. And it proves even more that we better deal with it because we are facing a major threat to our democracy that could become very explosive that we could very easily slip back into the sixties with the days of civil unrest. And I, I was there and I remember, and I, and I know some guys I grew up with were on the other side throwing rocks at us. It was just that kind of a time. And I hope to God that we can avoid seeing that again.
0: You know, your, um, your upbringing, your values, that you shared, obviously have a lot to do with how you think, what you believe, what you say now. Now you have, you have kids who aren't kids anymore. They're, they're adults. Yeah. What kind of values did you raise them with? You know, I, I have two sons and sometimes you're going so fast that um, it's not necessarily quite what you say, probably what they see, but what kind of values did you and your wife raise them with?
1: Well, I think my kids saw the values that we had. Uh, you know, we had people come in and out of our house of different colors, different uh, races and stuff. So they didn't see that there was a difference, that we treated everybody the same. It's not like uh, they, they, they were blessed. They didn't live in a sterile environment. They weren't bought in a sterile environment. My kids also saw me being a police officer for 25 years in the city of Hartford, and they know how that was. They can remember times when, people were marching and demanding i resign and all that kind of crazy stuff uh and they took some kidding at school because they were cops kids that's unfortunately understandable probably mm-hmm. hurt my daughter's dating game <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but, but i think that you know my wife and i i think by example we showed the kids that you know you you live a good life and you try to help other people and i know my my kids and my grandkids do that My like god they've been They've gone to the towns to help clean up after hurricanes and volunteer stuff like that. So they're uh, they're well aware of the fact that there are people that need help and that the, those of us who have the time or the the means should give them the help. And I and I see my kids do that today. So I feel pretty good that they had a good example growing up.
0: What did you learn from your wife?
1: How to be temperate.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> she she keeps me under control. <laughs> I, uh, I am blessed I have been married to the same woman for 58 years, <laughs> and uh, she has stood beside me strong and tall through uh, many issues, and, and, and even now dealing with my cancer and everything. Uh, she's been my superstar, and, and my, they've all been uh, unbelievably amazing through this difficult time in my life. They've made it easier for me. Mm. But my, my wife has always been my anchor every now and then. Uh, she's the one that can say, hey, listen, stupid. <laughs> You're going the wrong way. Slow down. <laughs>
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. How was retirement? And I ask you this because you had a few other gigs after you retired from the police force.
1: Yes. I. Uh, well, when I, when I left the police force, I wasn't ready to retire. Mm. I actually had taken a job at the Harvard Insurance. It was ITT at the time. I had this lovely private sector job. They headhunted me for it. Was, uh, Corporate national corporate director of uh, security and crisis management. Hmm. I was there like three months when I got a call from Governor O'Neill that the state police uh, were exploding, and he needed what he needed me. And hmm. I remember it, it happened so fast. He called me Friday afternoon. He sent his lawyer and his chief of staff to my house. Whoa! Friday night, I met him at his house in uh, East Hampton. And Sunday afternoon, I got sworn in. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And uh, I stayed till the end of his term. And then Weicker came in. Of course, he appoints his own person, which is Mm -hmm. Mm fine. And uh, for the next year, I did some on and off consulting. And then Tommy Ritter, who happened to be a personal friend of mine, became Speaker of the House of Representatives. And he asked me if I would be his Chief of Staff. And uh, Mm -hmm. when we first met, I said, you know, Tom, I'm not a political guy. It's not the arena I feel comfortable in. I said, well, you know, you know, we'll try it. If it doesn't work in six months, then we'll part friends, no hard feelings. And I wound up staying with him for six years. Mm. And I stayed on for two years with the next speaker. And then after that, I went to work uh, for the Tommaso family in New Britain. They have some difficulties. One of their family members was indicted with the governor on a bribery issue. And They mm. asked me if I would come in and help them out. I had known the father, Angelo, for years. A great guy him through the hundred club and he wasn't involved in any of the nonsense and neither was any of the other family members. So they actually hired me to come in and build some also stepped down and I took over the companies that he was running and I actually wound up running a 40 million dollar construction project out Waterbury. Wow. Uh, which I felt very good about uh, part of it was we took the old Palace theater if you ever go there mm-hmm. and we, we did that job to rehab it and bring it back to its original looks. And then uh-huh. from there, I pretty much, went it's a semi-retirement, did some consulting on law. And then I got a call from Mark Ojekian, who was the head of the Connecticut University System. He said that he had met with the governor, talking about some problems that Central Connecticut had. And the governor recommended he see if I was available. And uh, I, I was. So I went over there. I think I was over there like uh, six months did a reorganization, rewrote some policies and procedures, and cleaned up a real mess they had on their hands there, uh, which was, you know, it it was fun, a bit of a challenge, it was fun. And uh, I reported directly to the president, uh, Zulma Taro, who I found to be a terrific, strong person. I enjoyed working with her. And then at that, I said, that's it, no more. I did that marijuana consulting along the way, I got a contact from, Somebody I knew when I'd be interested, they wanted somebody to look at the security side of it, how they you know, develop the security for the different locations with cameras and all that kind of stuff. So I did that for a few months. And then uh, now I'm pretty much in retirement. Uh, we've been enjoying going to Florida every year and that kind of stuff. But we came back last year in the bad news. I uh, started losing weight, went to the doc and found out that I had leukemia. Hmm. And within a few months, it transitioned into my lungs. And I've been in and out of the hospital like seven times in the last year. And they put me in palliative care. And now I'm in hospice care at home, which is what I prefer. I don't want to go in the hospital anymore because that's a pain in the ass. Mm. It's fun riding in the ambulance, though. You get somebody else to drive where you go to Red Light <laughs> Siren, you know? Brings <laughs> back, raise back old memories.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so now I'm, I'm just enjoying these days as I can right now. And, you know, I can still get out a little bit. So I got a few friends that. I can't drive anymore, and I'm on oxygen all the time. But uh, Mm -hmm. I got a couple of friends that come over every couple weeks, so take me out to breakfast or lunch. So that's a break, and do that for as long as I can, and enjoy Mm -hmm. whatever I have left.
0: That's that's good. And you sound like you're at peace with this.
1: I am, you know, because if you can look back and and, you know do all the things I did, and uh, and all the things my wife and I do, you know, we've been to Europe, we've been to the Caribbean, we've had our Second home up on the Berkshires for a long time. We no longer have it. Uh, if you can look back at that, you look, you, the kids are fully grown. My youngest grandchild will be 25 this year, mm. so the grandkids are all employed and making a living. Everybody's in a good place. I've had a good back life, so there's no bucket list. There's uh, great memories. The mm. only thing I wanted, which I already did, was I told my wife. I said, "What I'd like to do is to." one last time have a little family picnic with the, the kids, the grandkids and all my nieces and nephews and my brother and sister. Cause mm-hmm. so there's only three of us siblings left out of an eight. And so we did that. We had a lovely time. We had a cater, and had a great barbecue with ribs and chicken and all the stuff that's not healthy.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I, and I got to, to see everybody one last time together. So that was nice. And beyond that, I'm at peace. Uh, I know where I am. And, uh, I'm comfortable. I'm not Mm -hmm. in any pain or anything, which is a blessing. Most people, when they get to this point, have pain. So far, I've had none. Mm -hmm. And I really have, uh, I look back, I have no regrets. I had a great life, uh, great family, great friends of all different kinds, and uh, a, a, a great personal and professional life. So life's been good to me, and it's just time to face my maker and see where the hell he or she sends me.
0: Just a, you know, a couple of last questions about about wisdom and what you've learned, and and what you'd like to share, especially when it comes to law enforcement. We're dealing with uh, the interpretation of defunding the police and what that really means, and that kind of swirled up with the Black Lives Matter movement and can be misinterpreted by a, a lot of folks. Um, what, you know, you've been a consultant for so many law enforcement organizations and companies, what wisdom would you share with them about what defunding the police might mean?
1: Defunding the police without thought is stupid. Mm. You know, there, there are things that need to be done. That doesn't mean you take away from the police to get them done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, As an example, in the 80s, in the Hartford Police Department, we had a crisis intervention unit that was comprised of degreed social workers, and we used those people to assist us on calls with people with mental health or other needs. They assisted us also with rape victims and things like that. So it was an integral component of the police department. After I retired, the powers to be took it out of the budget, and now they're trying to reinvent the wheel saying, oh, we should do something like that. So the biggest thing is, is to stop and think. What do you want the police to do? And don't just necessarily say we're going to take money from the police to create something else, because that something else may have to be integrated with the police. Because mm-hmm. if you just having a mental health capacity to respond is wonderful. And in Connecticut, they do that a lot, by the way. They have a, a, a thing in Connecticut where probably half of the police officers in Connecticut are already trained uh, to work with. Uh, social workers and stuff on response to people with mental health issues. So it's not something that's unknown to the police. It's unfortunate that the powers to be don't take a deep breath and say, what are you doing in that area before they jump the gun and say, we're going to take $2 million for you and create something new. It's just foolish. Mm -hmm. They need to think it through. There is no doubt that there may be things the police do that you don't want them to do anymore. That's something that community decide. If you want to create a traffic unit, not have the police give out traffic tickets anymore, that's a policy decision. It may not be the best decision because the whole purpose of traffic enforcement is to keep the accident rate down. It's not to make money. Mm-hmm. Now, Unfortunately, down at Ferguson, they had a set It was there to make money and it was aimed at the black community, which mm-hmm. you, you can't allow. So I mean, there's no reason that you can't look at the police and see what they're doing. What can they do better to serve the community? And how can the community and the police get along better? But the real thing is, is don't be... Of course, defunding the police was a bad term to use because I don't right. think that was the full intention of people. Right. The intention was to say, "How can we get resource dollars to deal with mental health and stuff like that?" Which I don't think anybody of policing objects to; they would fully support it because it's a, an integral thing of what they have to do. They don't like to hurt people. You know, I shouldn't say that that way because there are bad cops out there, and they need to be dealt with. And I've been advocating for some time now. For some kind of a national certification of police officers to get it out of the local political arena, get it out of the Board of Arbitration and all that union stuff where a national standards are set. If you violate them, you can be decertified and you don't have to go through all this process that we have to go through now. So I'm all for reforms that are necessary. And all I'm suggesting is that we take our time and understand first what you're trying to reform. Before you jump in and say, well, let's do ABC because we think it's wonderful, because they may already be doing some of A, B, and C. You're not even aware of it. The bottom line is to take your time and look and look. Mm-hmm. And if something needs to be fixed, of course, fix it. But don't jump in and just do a whole bunch of stupid things up front that it'll just backfire. You're not going to get the police on your side. You're not going to get anybody on your side. Mm-hmm. I think the police need to be. Transparent, but we do need something national because there are bad police departments out there. I, I, you know, I use Kenosha as an example where this kid was allowed to come in with a assault weapon walking down the street to the cops, giving him a bottle of the water, he winds up killing somebody. I mean, mm. how stupid is that 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 was even allowed to happen because the police failed to do their job and provide a wedge between the good guys and the bad guys? Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot of that. You got problems in Seattle where they're not funding the police properly. They can't even control the crowds anymore because they're not hiring police officers. They a defunding thing out there, which is stupid. The bottom line is everybody has to sit back. I I don't think any police chief out there is against you taking a look at my department, feel free. If you can make some positive changes, we're all for it. All they're asking is take your time and take a look. Don't do something rash that turns the whole system upside down.
0: Exactly. What do you see um, in the future? Uh, I, I read your posts and you don't post about one particular subject. You've got a pretty phenomenal worldview of things. Um, and you, you talk about a lot of different issues in, in different subjects. What do you see in our future?
1: I think that we're going to go through some difficult times in the short term because of this whole era that's been created by Trump. I think that he woke up a lot of sleeping dogs. Uh they become active, they're more visible, they're more violent. Uh they they feel more uh, supported, they feel more righteous about what they're doing. And I think we're gonna have to beat that back. And I don't think it's gonna be easy, and I think it's gonna probably put us through a couple of uh rough years. So just you know, recently in Connecticut, I think it was Guilford, they oh, had a yes. primary. And the real issue of the primary was this critical race theory nonsense that everybody's Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. crazy about. And I shouldn't say critical race theory is nonsense. It's not what's nonsense is how they're making it sound like it's being taught at the high school and grammar school level. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately the guy that won the primary was anti teaching that in school, Mm -hmm. which means that he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And it means he's a racist because he doesn't Mm -hmm. want to talk about racism. And and racism exists today. You can't deny it. You you still have some degree of redlining. You, You still have people that look at somebody different just because of the color of their skin. You can't tell me that that's not happening. If you do, you're a fool. But unfortunately, you need it. this guy woke up the wrong side of our country. And it's scary as to how many people voted for him. And what's really going to be interesting is in the next election with the Congress, how the votes turn out. Mm -hmm. If that number that supported him doesn't drop significantly knock the Republicans down, then we are in deep trouble in this country because it means that that many people support the racist platform that they're supporting.
0: It is quite scary. It is. Bernie, thank you so very much. Um, My
1: pleasure. Good to talk to you.
0: I'm glad we got a chance to talk. And uh, as I close, this is Anita Ford Saunders, and this is 60 Plus. Thank you. Bernie knew his illness was terminal, but with grace and the joy he possessed wherever he went, he consented to this interview. Chief Bernard Sullivan passed away on October 5th, 2021. We are all better people for knowing him. Rest in peace, Bernie.